Hey folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase and this is my podcast. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to Pivot Point. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we are here with part two of the Craig McKay interview. And I know I left you on such a cliffhanger, and it was a shorter episode. This one will make up for that, I promise. So as we left off, we were talking about my lack of understanding about friendship with Craig. I mentioned that I had moved to Nashville. So let me tell you how that story unfolds. Craig and I, we did Miami Blues. We had a great time together. He started to do a film called Shining Through. I was brought on to do the temp on that film and then finished the film with him. And during that process, of course, I got to work with David Seltzer, but more importantly, I got to know him. And he's a wonderful human being, wonderful director, writer. And that film, Shining Through, is one of my all-time favorite films, um, mainly because of the work that we all did together. I still have a poster of Shining Through here in my studio. So after that, Craig and I went on to do a movie called Mad Dog and Glory. And so here's some backstory, though. I need to put a pause or a pin there and just let you know that at that time and my personal life, my marriage was not going very well. And what we decided to do was to make a change in our personal life. And we were living in Stanford, Connecticut at the time. We have two children. Uh, they were young. I think it's fair to say that my ex-wife didn't want me to work in the film business, mainly because of the toll that it took on the family dynamics. I was up early before everybody got up, and I got home when everybody was in bed when I was working on a project. Not all projects were like that, but a lot of them were. And then I'd be off for months. And so it was, um, it was stressful, uh, I think, particularly for us as a couple. So we decided a move would be the best thing. And these conversations started during Shining Through and really culminated uh, when I started working on Mad Dog and Glory with Craig. And throughout our conversations, we would look and think, no, not upstate New York, not LA. We've already been there. We decided to go to Nashville because we had traveled through there at one time uh, we really liked it, and so we did. We went to Nashville for a long weekend, fell in love with it, found a house, bought the house, and came back after a five-day long weekend. And I told Craig that, um, you know, when we wrap the film, uh, I'm going to be moving to Nashville. So our friendship at that point just kind of went away, mainly because I didn't really understand we had a friendship, as I mentioned before. And it's very difficult in, in, during that time to keep relationships long distance. We didn't have what we have today. We don't have Zoom. We didn't have FaceTime. Uh, we didn't even have cell phones. And it was a real hard break. I didn't realize how hard it was for Craig and myself. So 
Let's just go ahead and fast forward about six or eight years, I don't remember now, where we didn't talk much to each other. And um, one day, I got this same unction that uh, we talked about uh, in the other episode. And that unction was this revelation of how much Craig was a friend to me in those earlier years, and all of the opportunities that he gave me, not just opportunities in working, but opportunities in having a real friendship. And my brain just kind of like, you know, it's hard to describe. But you know, when you all of a sudden get an aha moment? Well, this was a very deep aha moment. I just didn't know what to make of it myself, but it was it was like really clear. And so I called Craig. <laughs> you know, I had that same fear. I hope he doesn't pick up, you know? Like don't hope that door's closed. It's like I hope he doesn't pick up. This time he didn't pick up. And I left him a voicemail. In the voicemail, I just said, you know, I said, hey, Craig, this is Joe DeBisi. I know it's been a very long time, and I just want to call and tell you how much I appreciate everything you've ever done for me. I appreciated our friendship, and I just hadn't realized it, and I just want to call and say thank you. That was it. That's, that's all I did. I got a call back from Craig. We chatted. And talked about, you know, what was going on in my life. And we talked about some of the things that were going on in his life. One of the things was he was about to start a movie with J-Lo. Now, just as a little sidebar, I had been out of the business for so long, I didn't even know who J-Lo was. I had to look her up. Then I had that same unction, you know, that thought in my head that said, tell Craig you're available. He's going to hire you. And that frightened me because I had been out of the business for a number of years and you, you know, you just wonder, can you, can you get back in it? Can you do the work again? I call Craig and I, no, it wasn't a call. Sorry. It was an email. I emailed Craig. This was back when email was just starting, you know, when we all had that free Juno account. So I emailed Craig and, um, I just said, I'm available if you need someone. And true to Craig form, you know, Craig is not a man of many words. And I got back an email that simply said, oh, really? <laughs> Which is so Craig. And then I don't know when it was, if it was a week later, he called and said, uh, the job is yours if you want it. I said, yes and took a leave of absence from where I was working, and went to New York and worked with Craig on Made in Manhattan. And that is how I got back into the film business. That's quite remarkable. Uh, I've been out of it for a number of years and got back in, and it felt as though I hadn't left at all. And that was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Craig and I went on to do more films together, and we had more time hanging out together, and we rebuilt our friendship. One of the things that we did often was sit on a bench in the courtyard of Craig's apartment building. That bench was titled the Jesus Bench. 
And I think Craig gave it that name. And the reason it's called that is we would sit there for hours talking about the deeper things of life, about religion, about philosophy. Sometimes it wasn't talking. Sometimes we debate it. But it was really fun stuff. I personally love going deep like that. And it was really great. And I know I'm not the only one who has sat on that Jesus bench with Craigers. And for those of you who are fortunate to do so, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So here we are years later. And before we get to the second part of the interview, I just want to say this. Pivot points aren't always about career advancements. It's about the influences that happen in your life that shift your life and change your direction. And that's what happened with Craig and myself. I believe we, we both had a, a, the ability to speak into each other's life and, and influence each other's lives in a positive way that kept us close throughout all the years. And that's a huge pivot point. And yeah, it did influence my career, we got to work together on eight movies. That's amazing. So my encouragement is this, to stay open and vulnerable. And I say that because I missed it the first time. I missed it. And I'm very, very fortunate that I got a second chance, that somewhere in my life I had an aha moment that was like, it just shined a light onto what, was happening in my past. That's I'm very fortunate for that to happen. And I hope that we all get that opportunity. Um, but better yet, let's not miss it the first time, like I did. Okay, here we go. Part two, Craig McKay and I chatting it up. Take it away, Craggers. <laughs> And that's the most important lesson I learned was that you've got to ask for what yeah. you want. Yeah. You can't expect somebody to come up with it on their own. Yeah. And so I asked, and that really started my feature film career. Yeah. And how did that film so, go? Was it a successful film? Did that no, lead to the next film? No, not a good one. Not, okay. <laughs> no, no. No, so I had a lot of good credits as an assistant, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was an assistant on The Exorcist, the original Exorcist, mm-hmm. which pushed all pushed me all toward being an editor on my own. Because they said, you know, what have you done? You know, and of course, I also learned that your resume meant everything mm-hmm. in the business. And my resume started to look pretty good because I was an assistant on The Exorcist, and then I worked on Slaughterhouse Five and Night Moves and stuff like that. And so here I had my first movie. And it was, I had all the trouble that anyone could have on my first movie. And I, I swear, you know, if I wasn't so steadfast in my wanting to be a feature editor, I should have walked off of it. Oh, but really? I stuck it out. I stuck it out, yeah. Tell me, and, tell uh, me some, of those, some of those hurdles. Oh, well, you know, I mean, some of them were just dealing with a very artistic director and an old-fashioned studio, you know, I mean, it was, they were up against it, and I remember when we were toward the end, and Herb and Marlowe were an item, and, and toward the end, I think Herb had just had it, and we we had everything cut except for the ending, 
So they were thinking of taking him off the film, but they hadn't quite decided to do that. Mm. They gave him an ultimatum. You know, by next Monday, you have to have a cut together that we can see. Of course, we had everything except an ending, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I, was just, I said, I know what we're going to do. I walked over, <laughs> turned the lock on the door, and I said, we're not leaving till we get that ending. Oh, nice. And I was working with my assistant at that time, was Eric Deason. He said, well, you go ahead and do it and then show it to me. So, <laughs> okay. So Eric, you know, I did it along with Eric's help, and we stayed there three days straight, I think. Wow. Cutting the ending. And at times we had to take breaks. We'd lay down on the floor, and the, whole, the floor was moving, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I finished it, and we, we took it to the studio by Monday, and they saw the, the movie, you know. Hmm. Then it got finished, uh, but it didn't do well. Didn't do well at all. Yeah. But it was my first. I had a feature film under my belt, mm-hmm. which is why I stuck it out. Because I, you know, I know if I left on my first feature, it wouldn't mean much. Right. And so. You know, yeah, and you wouldn't. Yeah, it'd be harder to get the next one. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever do any more work with Herb? Not really. One of the great things on that job when I was doing it is that. Herb had back problems, and he was seeing Kennedy's back doctor at the time. And at one point, he couldn't come in, so he asked his friend, Bob Falsey, to come in the cutting room oh, and work with me. Mm. And so uh, I was all right with that. I was really okay with that. Yeah. And so Bob and I got together working on the scene that Bob was actually in the movie starring in. We worked on his scene and maybe a couple of other things. But uh, I got to know him, which, I, which is a great experience, because uh, I thought he was a major talent as a director. Although some people don't think that. It, it's a, my opinion is different. At any rate, we'd be working together. We're very easy to work together. What do you think, Greg? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, do this, you know. And uh, some wild things happened as a result of that period I was working with Fossey. Oh, yeah? I can remember he came in one morning, and he threw a script on me. He says, Take a look at that. I said, okay, what is it? He says, a friend of mine wants to direct it. And this kid wrote a script, but he wants a star in it. And the studio wants to, you know, they don't want to let him, but, you know. Mm. So I read, I read the script. The script was Rocky. Oh, my gosh. He said, what? So he said, what do you think? I think, it's a, I think it's a great movie. He said, well, I'll let you know what happens. But he said, I just wanted to get your opinion. So, no, it's a great movie, you know, so. Turns out Stallone got the part he wanted. He wrote the script for nothing to get the part. Yeah. And then, you know, I met so many people because Herb was very social, had a lot of friends, a lot of friends. And so I got to know a lot of people in the business and it got me to, you know, work on other stuff. And it just, I mean, it just escalated from that point. Mm. Mm. When did you work with Didi? How did that, how did that happen? Well, I was... I had gotten my first feature, but I was waiting around for other films. And when you did, when you decided to become a feature editor, I had done these, and I let everybody know in the city that I wanted to uh, edit. I was no longer interested in being an assistant, so uh, I notified everybody, and uh, I didn't get a call for ten months. <laughs> wow! And ten months later, I got the call. You know? Yeah. How was that ten month period? That was with no work, right? No work. No, no. but I'm, you know, I'm a good little squirrel. I put away <laughs> enough to, uh-huh. to take care of uh, stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And so eventually I got a call 
to do, I forgot what they got a call for. Maybe it was Evan, I'm not sure. It's a little foggy when, as you get up there in years, and I have to look at my resume. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, the career took off after that 10 months. I had done, I had cut another little film. I forgot what it was. Is that the Wanderers or the Thieves? Yeah, no, Thieves was the first feature I got. Okay. But the Wanderers were, uh, I was a co-editor. I got a co-editor thing with Ronnie Roos. Okay. And so that, just a short gig. But I did get another editing credit on features. And then and then I think uh, Evan Lottman called me through Alan Himes recommendation. And then I worked with Evan on a feature. And that was the start of a relationship. I think we did three films together. After that, I got a call from Barry Malkin, who I knew from the commercial editing place. And I worked with him as an associate editor on Who is Harry Kellerman? Then I got into a whole period where I was doing movies of the week, which were full movies. Mm. You know, back in those days, it was, you know, it was a good gig because you got to do a full movie, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I met, had met Steve Rotter, who was working for Herb Brodkin, who was a famous TV producer. And Rotter is doing a, movie, a miniseries for NBC that Brodkin's company was producing. It was called Holocaust, mm-hmm. and it was a huge major series, and it starred Meryl Streep. I think it was her first thing for television, and he called me, and he said, uh, I've got four shows to do. The third show is weak, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you if you want to do it, because the series is an important series, and, but I'm going to give it all the help you can give it, and I said, so yeah, I took it, mm. and I was working with Steve Rotter, was the head editor. Bob Bretano was his assistant. Alan Heim was cutting one of the shows, and Brian Smedley Ashton was another one of the editors. Mm. And then I had show three, which was the, the skunk or the stinker. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had Nancy Cantor was my assistant, and I went after the show. Now, I didn't know anything about the Holocaust. I was this Yahoo from upstate New York, and they didn't teach you anything about the Holocaust. I thought it was a disaster film, you know, because mm. they were coming left and right. So I took the job and I found out what Holocaust was. And it was something that really stirred me deeply, mm. uh, stirred my soul. Because I had read about, you know, when the Nazis were starting to eliminate people, the very first people they eliminated were the handicapped before the Jews. Mm. And I was still handicapped. You know, so it was another picture I related to. And so I dug into that picture and... and um, really got involved with it, and I felt like I had a weight on my shoulders mm-hmm. every day. And I felt a tremendous responsibility because I thought the story was so important. Yeah. And I worked on it and uh, finished it. And I got a call from Steve Rotter at 2 in the morning, who was out in Hollywood at the Emmy Awards. And he informed me that my show had won all the awards. Oh, my goodness. Had won an Emmy and an Eddie and all that stuff. And so... So I, that was a big, it wasn't a surprise because I knew I did a good job. Yeah. And I knew I made show work. And so, but I didn't expect to get any rewards for it, but I got big time awards for that. Mm. So I'm working on that. And uh, then Brodkin gives me a TV movie to do because they, now they think I'm a, you know, I'm a you're hot. Sort. You're the hot guy. Yeah. And so I was doing this, I can't even remember what it was. It was some TV, I think it was called death penalty or something like that. And I was on it, and then I got a call from Jonathan Demme. 
Oh, wow. Barry Malkin had recommended me to Jonathan Denning. Mm. And so Denny says, I got, uh, I got a feature I'm going to do. It's called Melvin and Howard. And uh, would you be interested? He's, he said, Barry Malkin told me all about you. And I said, well, yeah, when we get together. He said, good, I'm going to send you a script, and then we'll have lunch and talk about it. So I read the script. I, you know, I, to be quite honest, I didn't think a lot of it. I didn't think it was terrible, but I didn't think a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And so we met for lunch, and he's talking to me about it, and he says, he said, what did you think of the script? I said, well, you know, <laughs> I thought I had balls. Yeah. So I said, I didn't think that much of it. He goes, really? Um, yeah. He said, but I tell you what, I mean, I had seen a movie you did called Handle with Care, and I really like the work you're doing as a director. I like your take on the American culture, you know, yeah. the story of I really like to work with you. You know, I treasured it, and he gave me the jet. Wow, nice. He gave me the jet. So I was going to ask you, what, what had Demi done prior to that? So he did that one movie. Was he uh, up and up and coming director, or what? he was an up and coming director? He had done Handle with Care, which got some notoriety. Before then, it was like three movies for Roger Corman. Okay, you know, Women in Jail and stuff like that. Okay, <laughs> so he came out of the Corman the Corman field. There. He came out of Corman directly. Yeah, him and Coppolano. Gotcha. Others. Yeah. And so uh, I said, I'd do it. And then so then he called me a while later. He says, OK, we're starting in four weeks. I said, oh, I hadn't finished this TV movie for Brodkin. Mm-hmm. I still had like six, seven weeks to go. Mm. And I said, Jonathan, I got to finish this TV movie. I think it's going to be another six or seven weeks. He goes, oh, he said, uh, I don't know what I'm going to. Well, I'll get back to you. So I heard that Demi had called Barry and asked Barry, said, well, who? What am I going to do? Do you, got, do you have another editor? And Barry said, no, you want to hire Craig McKay. Do whatever you can to get him on that film. That's who you need to hire. Oh, Barry's great. And so Jonathan called me back and just listen, I want you on the movie, but I got to, you know, the overlap with what you're doing and what I want you to do might be a problem for the studio. And I got to check with him. And so he calls the studio and tells them that I'm going to be a few weeks late starting on the picture. And the studio's line was, as far as I've been told, is, well, who the fuck is Craig McKay? (laughs) (laughs) And Jonathan said, well, he just won an Emmy, and he just won an Eddie Award, you know, for the miniseries Holocaust, which was a huge success. And they went, oh. (laughs) Uh And I got hired. That's great. So I came on. But I worked, you know, overtime to catch up. Yeah. But And so, well, at that point, you know, we Demi and I had such a good time, and working with him was a lot of fun. Mm. And tried to keep it fun most part, for the most part. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you know, I did seven pictures with him. So, wow, seven. Uh, uh, so you did Melvin and Howard. What was after Melvin and Howard? Uh, something wild. Oh, something wild. And so anyway, we did a, and then married to the mob, and then I can't remember the order. It's going in Philadelphia. Hmm. Silence of the Lambs. But there was other stuff in there. I produced a documentary with him on Haiti. Oh, wow. Okay. I helped him out with a film on Mandela, which got nominated. Mm. So, I mean, there was all kinds of stuff. We cut it. We did a a music video with Bruce Springsteen. You know, stuff like that. But we were always together. And then Melvin and Howard had come out, and it was a huge success. So I've got to open that story up a little Okay. It was a huge success, and the uh, New York Film Critics loved the movie. So 
I had finished that and I was waiting around for the next thing. Uh, I didn't know how soon, and Jonathan wasn't even sure about what was coming up. And then I got a call from Dee Dee, and she said, I'm going to be doing this huge picture about the Russian Revolution that stars Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton, and it's enormous, and it's too big for me to do alone. I'm looking for a partner. Would you be interested? Mm. And Dee Dee knew me from earlier days, you know, you know, working at ADR and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why she called me. It took me about a tenth of a second to say, you know. Yeah. So I said yes, and then Dee and I were co-partners on that thing for two years, editing the movie. Wow. And how did we that work? On. Did you just, huh? did you hand off scenes to each other? How did that work? Or is it yeah. like, you take yeah, this reel, or you take this scene? Yeah, you take that reel, you take this You take this scene, I'll do this scene. Uh, do you want to do this scene? Mm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, and then we, Talk about it. once it was together. We talked about how long, how we long, how long we wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it was a real partnership. And uh, we, I, I still think it's one. It's a great film. It's a really great film. Yeah, uh, it took a lot to do. You can imagine we were working six, seven days a week, fifteen, sixteen hours. So relationships took a hit. Mm-hmm. And mine did. Fortunately, we were able to survive it, but. Some didn't, you know. Mm-hmm, and, uh, mm-hmm. Then there was an Academy Award nomination out of that. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. and then I think I think from there I went on to fill it up. No, from then I went on to was it Swing Shift, perhaps with Demi? Yeah, I did Swing Shift. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. thanks for thanks. For, <laughs> yeah, that was not a good experience. We both it was with Goldie Hawn and Chris Russell, Chris, uh, Kirk Russell. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually, uh, I'm not going to get into it too much, but Jonathan and I both left the film. Oh, I was one of those films. In one of those films. Yeah. Know? And so uh, there are a lot of stories about that that I frankly still can't tell. So. Okay. That's fine. That's okay. Let me ask you something. Um, you know, we've worked on a number of films together, and you've taught me a lot about pacing, rhythm. One thing I noticed about your work was there's an internal rhythm, especially when I was doing temp scores with you, I could tell that things were just flowing and falling into place rhythmically. Was that something that you felt you learned from somebody or something that was just innately yours? Uh, Where did that come from? I think, well, you know, uh, the part we didn't talk about when I was younger was I was, I had a band. Mm-hmm. And we used to play with the cat skills and stuff like that. And so, uh, and I had been interested in music a long time. And so I was a musician for a very short time because I didn't like the idea of being on the road and stuff like that. So yeah. that's when I really swung into making movies. But mm-hmm. uh, So I had this knowledge of, you know, just being a musician and music and loving it. And I think somehow whatever rhythmic sense I had for music transferred into film. Yeah, I had a very strong sense of it, and I realized that things flow in films with a rhythm. Yeah, it's a, it's it's one aspect of making movies they don't talk about much. It gets underplayed, but I think it's uh, almost single-handedly one of the most important. You know, there's a rhythm the actors have. There's a rhythm to the story. You know, yeah, there's a, a rhythm to to putting shots together and building, and you know, and so. I had this innate sense of rhythm, and, and I found that I could apply it, and did, 
to you know to, to film. Yeah, that was one of the first obvious things that I noticed right away when we first started working together. And I know that you don't edit mostly you don't edit with music. So in other words, that rhythm is internal. It's not external. You didn't put a piece of music up and start editing the picture to the music. You were editing the picture and finding its own rhythm and its own pacing. It's interesting that composers would say that to me. Yeah, because absolutely. When they were writing the score, it, you know, their stuff would fall in and it would fit. And, you know, yeah. It, they were the first ones to really mention it. Mm. Uh, you know, and I knew it was, it was, it was wait, it, it wasn't me? Oh, okay. No, you were one of them. <laughs> <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> you were one of them. So one of the things, uh, I, I remember one time, you'd be, we'd be working on something and you'd pull me in and we would just watch. We'd watch a reel. And I would get out my yellow pad to just take notes and you'd just like, no, put it down and just watch and take it in. Yeah. That has always stuck with me to take the time to not always analyze, but to absorb and let it let it hit you. And where did that come from from you? I mean, I I can say that came from Craig McKay. That was my one of one of my things that I know that happened with us. You know, it's always stuck with me is to take take that step back and just feel it. Mm-hmm. Where where was that from you? How did how did that first happen for you? I, when I was an assistant, I was pretty technical. As a matter of fact, I was considered the most technical. I was technically knowledgeable assistant in New York. Mm. And I had to do a whole transition when I started to editing, editing into story, into performance. That was a territory I hadn't been in, but I knew I had to deal with it. But I started taking a lot of notes. I started to notice that I was missing stuff because I wasn't taking time to concentrate on the scene as it was, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or the performance as it was, you know, or the story. You know, so at one point I realized that you can't do it. it you can't do both at the same time. Yeah. And so I really just disciplined myself. I said, nope, just take a look at it. See what the whole thing is and what you've got, you know? Yeah. And then you can go in, you know? But there's a, there's always a lot of note takers. I mean, that was, a, <laughs> yeah. you know, you think, and they, you know, they mess a lot of stuff, you know, so. I started doing that, and then I passed it on to people like you, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just love what you just said. You can't do both at the same time. You can't be in a technical headspace and in a creative storytelling space at the same time. No. Yeah. That's I agree. really great. That's really great. Yeah. When you were doing Silence of the Lambs, were there any major hurdles, any any difficulties of getting that film together, cutting-wise, story-wise? Well, I'd say to you that as an editor, uh, it's the one film where I got to do everything I wanted to do. Mm. Because sometimes you don't get to do everything you want to do mm-hmm. because of director or producer or actors or studio. That film, I got to do everything I wanted to do. And I mean, the thing you're talking about, rhythm, is really clear in that movie. But there was a, we only had one problem. I was putting it together and the thing was working just amazing uh it it struck me every day as i was working on it how powerful a movie it was mm-hmm. it's powerful wow right and p- putting it together it just you know was supercharged down the narrative highway it just kept taking off taking off taking off 
And there was one point in the film where Clarice gets fired because she did some manipulating to try and get people to answer stuff, and, and Jack Crawford fires her. So we were running the movie, and that point comes up, and she gets fired. And normally in storytelling, it's called a strong curtain. Mm. It comes down. You don't know where the main character is going to go, mm. what direction, you know. No idea. So we had a strong curtain where she gets fired. And then, of course, once you stop everything, you got to start everything up again. Mm. And so with Silence of the Lambs, everything was charging at such a fast rate. I'm talking about the narratives uh, that when we got to the stop for the strong curtain, it was really difficult to start up again. And so we, although we didn't recognize that specifically as a problem, we thought there was something that was holding us up because we all believed in, you know, the three act and, you know, all of the formulation. Yeah. And that's the idea of a strong court curtain is in a lot of movies, you know, and something that successfully used a number of times. And so we couldn't figure out why the movie wasn't working, why so much of it was. And so Jonathan took it to Bill Goldman to show him in a screening. And after the screening, we're talking to Goldman and Goldman, you know, we're saying, what? Something's not working. What's going on? He says, that scene where she gets fired? I said, yeah. He said, take it out. Mm. She never gets fired. And that allowed the narrative to just really travel, you know, right mm. to the end. And we did it. You know, the thing, the, the lesson here is that sometimes you're so involved with a story and you're so in the trenches that you don't see stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and that was that was the only problem we had with Silence of the Lambs. Everything else was just absolutely fantastic. Mm. You know, very powerful, very powerful. Oh, oh, yeah. And and for those who don't know, tell us who Bill Goldman is. He's one of the famous Hollywood screenwriters mm-hmm. around. Mm-hmm. He's got a major book on it, and he's he's a he's a god, a movie god, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a screenwriter, a movie god. Yeah, he just passed away recently. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he was able to uh, screen the movie and, and give you a a unique point of view. Oh, that... he was somebody with a clear head who could look at it because we were all, you know, busy with the picture. We were making good choices, but yeah. it was an intense movie, you can imagine. Yeah. Intense it was. Oh, no doubt. Mm-hmm. It took me years to have to be able to see it. I couldn't see it when it first came out. Yeah, yeah. And then when I was finally at a place, I'm like, okay, I, I, I could see it. I was just blown away. Well, it was interesting. You know, because Jonathan, I would ask Jonathan at the start of every movie, I'd say, give me one thing about the movie and the story that I can hang on to. Because a lot of the time, he wasn't there when I was cutting. He was still shooting. Mm. And I wanted to keep his intent, you know, mm-hmm. foremost. And so I said, I went to, I went to on lines, I said, give me something I can hang on. He knew what I meant. Mm-hmm. Give me something I can hang on to. And he thought for a while and he said, okay. It's a very human story. Oof. That's all I said. This is a very human story. And I, I went, okay. <laughs> and, I'm going, and it took me a while to figure out what he was talking about. But it, it helped me through the entire movie. Mm. What he was saying to me is that this is not a horror film. This is a film about the darkest part of our humanity. Mm-hmm. That's the movie we're making. We're not making a you know, thriller, scary movie. You know. That's what the movie is. It's all about... It's a very human story. Mm-hmm. It is about the dark, one of the darkest parts of our humanity. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, and I was that was very helpful. 
when I was putting it together. Yeah, and it shows. It it definitely that's that's the the line that goes throughout the whole movie. Yeah. And I think it's reflected in Clarice. She feels like her response in the whole movie is so human throughout all of it. It's her reaction is like our reaction. Well, actually, so is Lecter's, if you think about it. Yeah. You know? Sure. And uh, so it was a great guide. And he was brilliant just saying that simple line. Yeah. For me to follow this. He wasn't there a large part of the time. He was off shooting. They had a grueling schedule on that. And, uh, one of the scenes I get a lot of praise about is the, the cross-cutting scene where the cops are coming and mm. James Gunn's in the basement and then eventually we hear a knock on the door and we open it and Clarice is caught right in the middle of the scene in danger, you know. Yes. And the cops are at the wrong house, you know. Yep. That was, a, that was a very tough scene to cut. It took me three days to cut that scene. I know it looks simple, but yeah, it was, it, it was timing and how things were revealed and mm-hmm. rhythm. And uh, I got the dailies in on that, and I looked at it, and they were all shot in a linear fashion. And I said to myself, this scene should be, we should cross-cut this scene. You know, the way Jonathan shot it, he shot things all in a line, and you had to open it up and move, you know what I mean? Yeah. Make room for everything. So I didn't know what to do, so I called uh, Jonathan, and I couldn't get him. He was so busy shooting that I said, let me speak to the script supervisor, so... I spoke to her and I said, look, I just looked at the scene and it's shot parallel, but it looks like it should be, you know, cross-cut. I said, do you know what his intention was? And she said, well, no, I don't. Mm -hmm. I said, oh. So I cut the scene in a linear fashion because I I really didn't know. Didn't indicate that in the script at all or anything. Yeah. And so two months later, a month later, when we're screening the scene, and I showed the scene to Jonathan and he leans over and says in my ear, how come he didn't cross-cut that? <laughs> <laughs> I said, or I'll fix it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I fixed it. Oh, that's but great. One of the mag- magic moments of that was, so I, now I'm going to cross-cut that scene, right? And I'm spending a lot of time. This works. That doesn't work. It, it, for the smallest reason, it didn't work. I was, you know, I really got stymied, and I had, had to try everything, you know, and and after on the third day and I'm looking at it it almost works something's not working mm. I'm sitting there in the cutting room this is in the Brill building and I'm depressed and going what the hell do I do you know and I look across the room and there's a bin with one piece of film hanging in it and I look at it and it's a shot of Crawford that I need oh that's awesome and uh, I said oh my god that's it I put it in the, the film and that's the cut <laughs> Sometimes those moments actually happen. Yeah, exactly. So tell me, uh, in Philadelphia, there was a moment, too. Wasn't there a scene that um, almost never made it? Well, there's a scene in contention that's called the opera scene, in which Tom is in the trot and his trial, and Denzel Washington comes to, or he's not in his trial, he's about to start his trial. And Denzel, his lawyer, pays him a visit to just go over things before the trial. And he goes over to Tom's house, and, and Tom's playing a piece of music called La Mama Mom, La Mort, about Maria Callas is singing his opera. He starts to talk to him about the opera and what's going on as he's walking around the room with his IV, and Denzel's taking it in, and, there's a moment, and the music is building beautifully. And there's a moment where Denzel, who is somewhat homophobic, 
mm-hmm. and Tom, his character, they sort of meet, and it's when a moment where everything falls away, and their humanity meets. Everything's you know everything falls away, and it's just them. And it's a beautiful moment, and it's so Denny. Denny is a very humanist director. Mm. And then uh, he finishes, and Joe, his lawyer, Denzel says, you know, yeah, you don't need to prep and. Denzel leaves him and we're outside his door, apartment door, and he stops and has a moment and then he hears the music start up again and he starts to go back and then he changes his mind and he leaves to go home and I decided to keep the music in all the way mm-hmm. until he goes home, he he tucks his child in and he, he lays down with his wife and it, it's so it's all one piece. Yeah, it's totally built on its emotionality, mm-hmm. uh, which the whole movie was built on, because it didn't work as a three actor, you know, first act, second act, third act. We tried to structure it that way; it didn't work, and so we had to find a different way to make it work. And so we played on the emotionality and made those moments prime moments, mm. and that's how it ended up working. And uh, I remember when the, the reviews came in, uh, American critics. Uh, didn't think much of it. Mm. We really didn't think much of the film. And I'm going, we had just saved the movie by doing this incredible structure based on emotionality, which we were good at, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, nobody got it. It sent me into a depression. Oh, really? I mean, I was, yeah, I was, why didn't anybody see what we were doing? Why didn't anybody see, you know? Mm. So finally, I got to see a European review. I think it was some, somebody in London. And I read the review. And they got it. Mm. Then I read reviews from France and from Germany, and they all got what we were doing. But not one American critic got it. Mm. And of course, it uh, I felt a lot better. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. But it, to this day, people still come up to me and talk to me about that film. It, yeah. it emotionally fixes them, and there's a reason it does, because you know we focused on the emotionality of that film. Yeah, yeah. and AIDS was quite controversial at the time, too. There was so many misleading ideas of where AIDS came from and how it's all affecting uh, people, and it. And I, I'm not surprised that the American press just, you know, they just didn't have the ability to really be open to receive what was really being said there. And I think that's why that that film stands the test of time. You know, it's just it's a beautiful yeah. film, and that yeah. scene what you just described. What I love about how that music kept on playing over Denzel going home, it kept Tom Hanks in his mind. It kept what was going on in his soul, even as he laid down. Everything was a counterpoint to his life. He can look in on his kids. You know, it just had this yeah life and what was about to happen. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. it was beautiful, so beautiful. And why was that scene? What were people just having issues with the scene? They just didn't want it in the movie, or they just felt it just didn't add. A lot of people had Jonathan's ear and wanted to take it out. And uh, you know, uh, I had arguments with a couple of people on the crew and other people. They couldn't see because it's outside of exposition. Mm-hmm. You know, it's emotion. It's an emotional moment. Mm-hmm. Continuous emotional moment. Wasn't in, in the traditional. It didn't move the story forward at all. Really. Yeah. It stopped to tell you where everything was emotionally. You know. Yeah. And a lot of people 
thought it wouldn't work in the movie. I had to throw my body over, <laughs> yeah, over the steam deck and beg him not to take it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm so mm-hmm. glad you did. You, you've taught mm-hmm. me another thing, Craig. While uh, and I, I can't tell you what film it was that I remember this from, but you've said to me more than one time that people are afraid of emotions particularly if it strikes something within themselves. And a lot of times they'll ask, you know, have it taken out of a film because it's too much for them to handle. Well, that's true. I mean, that's a prime example of what I'm talking about, or what we're talking about. Sometimes it's just too much. Here's the thing. When you go to a movie, it's a safe place to see anything. Mm -hmm. And if if you cross that line, it's not a safe place, mm-hmm. and they don't like it. It's very simple. Huh? Yeah, and, you know. I mean, a lot of mer- movies push that the envelope on that, but uh, that was one of them that did. Uh, and I thought I was going to have that problem with lamps too, but they all took it in. Mm-hmm. But that's what I meant by that. I mean, you, there is a line you can cross because initially they want a safe place to view anything. You know. Yeah. To a point. To a point. Yeah, do you think if it uh, has an element of truth, then that line gets pushed back and they can endure more of the emotionality? I'm not sure I understand that question. Say it again. You know, if, if something is emotional and, and it, you know, we talk about the, the safety, you know, what's the, what is that line of safety? And is it, well, if it brings a truth? Go. Right. You know, simple. But how would how would we any of us know what that is for anybody else uh, to gauge that? And I just wonder well, if I, truth. I audience, when they're in a the theater, you know, it's a mass experience. It's not a single experience. Mm. You know, there's a contract there when you go into the theater, or if you go anywhere, you know, even listening to a radio show or anything. There's almost a sacred agreement that you know, I'm going to be safe there, mm-hmm. and and that. Line. I mean, that scene for a lot of people kept line because you're right. There was still, a, you know, it was, was an AIDS film. I mean, they were, you know, and then half of them sure didn't want to be even sitting in the audience looking at it. Yeah, it's 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 part of a contract that the audience and the and the filmmaker make. Mm-hmm. He wants to take you and thrill you, but to a point, you know, there's a point you can cross. And I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen. Mm. You know, one of my favorite movies that we worked on together was Shining Through. And uh, the first time I got to see the cut, it was, I think it was three hours and 10 minutes. And we weren't doing movies that were over two hours at that point. And yeah. I absolutely loved that cut. I thought, man, I, I, it was, I was in that world. I didn't want to leave the world. And going through the process of having scenes be shortened or, or, or removed was really gut-wrenching for me. It was one of the <laughs> one of the lessons learned of how to uh, how to tell a story in less amount of time and keep the essence of what the story is about there. Well, you got to keep more than the essence. You got to keep the soul of it. Yeah. 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 It was uh, one of my favorite and still is favorite movies yeah. to, to watch and, and to have been part of. No, it's supposed to be an homage to, you know, those 40 war movies. Yeah. But a contemporary homage, you know. Yeah. 
I don't know. I have some mixed feelings about that one. I mean, I, the director and I, David, Dave are, are very good friends. I know you're friends with him too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. David Seltzer, that's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think the studio was pleased with that film, I don't think. But mm. I can't explain why. I mean, when you, you know, there was another dynamic at play with that first cut. It was an overview that was bigger than the old war movie. And I think some of that got lost. Yeah. And that damaged. I do agree that damaged. I still like the movie very much, but I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But it can happen. That can happen. When yeah. I wish that cut was still available. I would love to have seen that, even with a temp score. That would be great. <laughs> it just yeah. was, you got so <laughs> deep into the world of each prime character. Uh, and, and when it all came together in the third act, it it, it was chilling. It, it was riveting. It, yeah, it was really great. Really, really great. Well, we try, you know. We yeah. Try. Well, that's, yeah. Very, it's serious business. It's, yeah. Nothing slack about it, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that, you know, you're not doing much work anymore. Do you miss being involved, miss storytelling? What, what's happening? Uh, and what's I your thoughts on that? I do consulting stuff still in and out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also do some seminars. I did one for the School of Visual Arts last week. So I'm, you know, I'm still involved. Uh, yeah. I'll always be involved, but uh, my degree of uh, the kind of craziness I had in my youth. <laughs> uh-huh. And I was a hard worker. I was a very hard worker. Yeah. So I'm kind of just relaxing, you know. Yeah. Thinking, so I got a project I'd like to produce, but it's hard. It's very hard. Yeah. So I'm taking it easy. I'm enjoying my myself and uh, uh, and my daughter, who I spent I didn't spend much time with when she was growing up, and mm-hmm. for that I'm very sorry. Mm-hmm. But we made amends on that. So um, you know, mm-hmm. we're in a very good place today. Yeah. Uh, that's and, great. Uh, I had a very difficult time when my wife, Pat, passed away. She had a neurological disease, which slowly diminished her over a period of seven years. Mm-hmm. And I took care of her for most of that. But, yeah, you know, uh, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay. Yeah. I, I remember those times. Those years were long and hard. Yeah. You know, I'm watching a lot of old movies, and I'm really into technique and when you could see the change you know yeah um, simple stuff it started to get a little more complex mm-hmm. when after they got to sound for one and then they were able to blink the camera so it could move better and you know so i'm watching all that stuff and you know i made a lot of great friends in the business and some legendary i mean one of my good friends was uh, james wong howe who was a legendary cameraman mm. and Jimmy and I were friends, and I was really excited to have him. You know, Arthur Penn. I became close to Arthur mm-hmm, Penn. Mm-hmm. And we had spent some time at Sundance, the director's lab, helping young film students. And one, I remember one film student came in. We get there were ten in the room. There were also ten uh, people who were supervising it. Mm-hmm. This one uh, young director came in. They all had done shorts, and we had their script. And I had read, I had seen a short and read the script and I noticed that I was familiar with where he shot the film. So I said to him, I said, it was James Mangold, was his name, mm. who later did uh, Walk the Line. And anyway, uh, he, I said to him, did, did you see that film in Monroe, New York? He goes, how do you know Monroe, New York? 
I said, well, I grew up one town away from there. He says, well, he, and he grew up in a town away from there also. So we're all from the same hood. So. <laughs> yeah, nice. That's great. Later, he was uh, he was doing a, a feature, a low-budget feature. Yeah, I guess he was having trouble, so he called me up. He said, could you take a look at my film? Uh, it needs something, but I don't know what. And so I looked at the film. It was called Heavy. And I looked at the film, and... I got together with him and we talked and I made some suggestions and, and he thanked me, gave me a nice thank you at the end of the picture. And then a few years later, he gave me a call and he said, Craig, I'm doing this film called Copland and the stars Sylvester Stallone. I said, oh, I said, he says, well, we only got a $5 million budget. I went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he yeah. said, I guess you do it. I said, I don't think for that price, Jim, I don't think you can afford me. Mm. I'd be glad to any other way. So, I said, okay. And then he called me about a month and a half later and says, he said, hi. I said, he said, I think I can afford you. I said, why? He says, because, well, I've got Stallone, Harvey Keitel, uh, Robert De Niro, Ray Liotta, you know. And then they, they put the super cast in the movie. And so we got together and did it. And uh, where these two local boys started sort of making a movie. Uh-huh. That must have been a lot of fun, dude. It was a lot of fun. And it was hard work too. While I was working there, I'm a guitarist, so I wanted to buy a Telecaster guitar. Only I couldn't explain to my wife for spending the money, uh-huh. so I went out and bought it anyway. <laughs> I, I, hid, I hid the guitar in the cutting room, and oh, she, great, nice, yeah, Craig. She didn't know about it, and then uh, so while I was waiting for stuff to happen, I take out the guitar, pick it a little, and Jimmy came in one day and. The guitar I had was a Fender Telecaster, which mm-hmm. is the guitar that Luther Perkins used on every Johnny Cash record. Uh-huh. They gave that yeah. dum, 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 dum. Yeah. And so he heard me fooling around, and he came in, played a little, and he stopped and says, you know, I want to do a movie about Johnny Cash. Oh, I said, really? I love that. And so so we were picking, and I put it, eventually... My wife, I had to tell her, I had to fess up. Well, yeah, you had to fess up on that yeah, one. Yeah, but he the Johnny Cash movie, which I thought was a pretty good one, Walk the Line. Oh, yeah, that was a great movie. I really enjoyed it. I'm sorry you guys didn't get to work together on that. That would have been fun. Yeah, me too. I was under something else, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, Craig, I really appreciate you spending your time today talking with me about the stories of your life, about the films that you worked on. I'm grateful for all the work that you've put out into the world and how you've impacted so many people with your storytelling. And I'm deeply appreciative for how you've inputted into my life. So, uh, am I missing anything? Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap? No, except... uh you and I have had a very strong relationship uh, mm. when we're working together. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm, I've yeah. always cherished that and still do. Mm, Unless you do something screwy, then I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> 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 no, thank you, Chuck. Thank you. Yeah. Um, that's that's uh, very sweet of you. Mm. And, uh, I hope this helps you. Mm. Thank you, Craigers. Well, all right. We'll talk soon. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. The complete episode of Craig McKay, parts one and two. There you go. So if you have any questions or comments about what you just heard, feel free. Reach out at pivotpoint 
at jsdibiase.com. Pivotpoint at jsdibiase.com. Next week, we'll have another wonderful, talented picture editor, Cindy Malo. Cindy and I work together on a few things, and uh, you're not going to want to miss this interview. We get into some really good topics. All right. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. And remember, if he's doing it, why not you? <laughs> <laughs>